I don't want how I sound today to be a distraction in any way, so hopefully we can all make it through this. Welcome to Element. If you're new, that is probably more information than you ever needed. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables. They look like this. And on the front side, you're going to get the verses that we go through. You get a little place to write some questions if you have them. You can send those questions to us if you like to questions at ourelement.org. On the inside, you're going to get a summation of what we'll talk about this morning. And on the back, you get a place to write down some of your own notes. If you have a smart device, you can uh, download this app. It is called Uversion. Once you download it, it just says Bible. Click on more and then events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. And yes, I am on cough medicine this morning. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us to understand what this grace means that we have been saved by, and that we would live in joy in the midst of it, that our lives would be a response to what you have done and what you continue to do in us and in the world. And so I ask that we would understand better what it looks like to be a people who are saved by grace. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this series, the New Testament book of Ephesians. Today we are going to start chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can open to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles at Element, that's on page 634. Now, I think you should be excited about this because I very easily could have spent more weeks in chapter 1. I didn't. You're welcome. I know it sounds like a humble brag. I'm not trying to get like any kudos from you. Forget I said it but you should be thankful. Anyway, today, as we start chapter two, there's so much in chapter two. Almost, well, not almost, every single preacher that I like has preached multiple messages in Ephesians chapter two. It has some great and high theology. I'm gonna hopefully make this a little practical to you of why we, we are told the things that we are in Ephesians chapter two. Because as I said, Ephesians one really sees salvation from God's point of view, what God is doing. The beginning of Ephesians chapter two starts off by telling us, what salvation looks like from a human point of view, and it's not great. When we get to chapter 3, you're going to see how these two things begin to come together. Then you hit chapters 4, 5, and 6, which really become practical, but it all still hinges on chapter 1, 2, and 3, because we do not really live practically in our lives unless we understand what we believe, what we know. In the summer, we're going to do this series through First Timothy called Doctrine Matters, because it does. We need to know what we actually believe and why it's so important. So today, you know, a little expository preaching as we walk through these verses. Again, very, I think, practical, but it's very theological to begin with. I'm going to blast through the first 10 verses. We're going to go through verses 1 through 10, and then next week we're going to come back and just look at verses 8 to 10, but from a slightly different angle. And I'm doing this to hopefully satisfy you if you're a theology nerd and you want to talk about all this stuff. We're going to talk about all the things in there, but also help you to understand why Paul says the things he says, why he calls us to see this, because it goes out into how we then begin to live. Uh, I have Everyone I have read or listened to about this section obviously brings it back to Jesus, but more than one has simply called it, but God, or but God being rich in mercy, because that's chapter 2, verse 4. What I am going to do is call this from to and through. I probably stole it somewhere, it's been sitting in the back of my mind, and that's how I want to break it out. What we've been saved from, 
from, that'll be verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. Then what we've been saved to, that's going to be the end of it, verses 8 through 10. And then we'll come back and look at the middle of what we were saved through, and that's verses 4 through 7. So we're going to jump in. So we're not here for the next four hours, and I don't hit a coffee and fit at some point. Okay, so first off, what are we saved from? And this is going to sound very negative. If you decided, I'm going to go to Element this morning, so Aaron says some things out of the Bible, and I feel good, you're going to feel like I just kicked you in the gut, because this is how this looks to us. The first three verses is a comprehensive picture of what human beings are, the human condition outside of the grace of God. Here we go. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. I was in a Southern Baptist church last week. Sounds like this. Ooh, okay, here we go. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ooh, bet you're glad you came today, right? There you go. Paul clearly says, all of us have to stop playing the suppression of the truth game where we think we are better than somebody else. We're the white hats, they're the black hats. There might be some truth that you might be a little more moral than somebody else, but those lines are not as distinctive as you would like to think. In the New Testament, the most wicked people are the most religious people. And this is what you see. And if you call yourself a Christian, you should realize that we are saved by grace because when we sin, we should really know better. We tend to want to judge everybody else in the world who doesn't know Jesus and say, oh, look at all their problems, but they don't know Jesus. And if we say that we do, this is why we understand we truly need this grace. Paul says all of us are dead. And there are a lot of people today who said, oh no, I'm spiritual and I'm alive. But Paul says, if you don't have Jesus in your life, you are dead. How do we know that we are dead? Well, this word called sin. God speaks, we don't hear. God acts, we don't see. God cares, we don't care. That old Monty Python movie where you walk around, bring out your dead. We would all be brought out because we are all dead. Why are we dead? Because of our sins. What are sins? Sins are essentially missing the mark of what God has set up. And we have two different types. There are what are called sins of omission, where God created us to be a people who do certain things. And we don't. Love Him, serve others, glorify Him. And instead, what do we do? We love ourselves, we glorify ourselves, we honor ourselves. Uh, everything that God gives to bless us, this we bless other people, we give to ourselves and our own desires, omission, not doing what we're supposed to do. And then there are sins of commission, when God says don't, and we break a specific law anyway. Even people who don't know the Bible, they know certain things are wrong. You country music fans. So Paul... Paul will say in, the, in Romans 6:11 to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. And yet most of our lives, how we live is dead to Christ and alive to sin. And sin is not just what you do. I was, again, like Southern Baptist Church last week. And oh my goodness, it was like sin is all the things that you do. Sin is not just what you do. You get told that. You've been bad. You watch this. You slept with that. You drank that. You're terrible. But sin is not just what we do. Sin is in our nature. Sin is now who we are. We are inherently broken. In verse 3, Paul calls us children of wrath. But humanity was not made this way. Because of sin, we're now broken. Because we are now broken, we commit transgressions and sins. And many places, people will tell you that your hope is to stop committing trespasses and sins. Your hope is not to stop committing trespasses and sin. Your hope is to become alive in Christ. That's your hope. 
See, so often we're told, don't do these things and then God will love you. That's not how it works. Our hope is to be alive in Christ. And when we're alive in Christ, sin loses its taste and we start to want to live differently. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. If you write in your Bibles, you feel so inclined, or using one of the Bibles at Element, write in it, I don't care. I want you to circle the word following. It's in the text there twice. Now, the English word for following doesn't really do this word justice because it means you're enslaved by something. You are mastered by something. And the reason it says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin is that you are as helpless as a dead body. Years ago, there's this movie that came out. It's called Weekend at Bernie's. And Bernie's this guy. He died. He had these three guys that worked for him. They, oh, we don't want anybody to know that Bernie died on our watch. So they take him around to all these parties. They drag this dead guy around like he's alive. Guess what? You're Bernie. We are all Bernie. We are drug around in our lives because we are powerless. We are following these things. What are they? Three things. Satan, ourselves, and the world. Okay, Satan. I know some people say, oh, that sounds like folklore. And if that's you, if you doubt he is alive and well, well, he's done a pretty good job. Shows how crafty he is. The second thing, though, is ourselves, that we are not just victims. We like our sin. If we didn't like it, we wouldn't do it. And the third thing is what we call the world. And this is when our flesh and the enemy work together. This collective mass gets formed. That's called the world. And you have these values of pride and greed and lust where they become virtues. Be true to you. How do you feel? We'll chase that. What does your heart say? That is all the world. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because the big idea is this is what it means to be enslaved. Verse 3, among whom we were all, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now the point here is the flesh. The flesh does not mean your physical body. There are many translations who will write the word sinful nature there instead of the words the flesh. The actual Greek words mean the flesh, but it's really this sinful nature that we have. It's our our self-centered nature that drives us, the thing that controls us. I probably told you this before, but when we're talking about being dead in trespasses and sins, Martin Luther once said, the human heart is incurvatus in se. Incurvatus in se means curved in upon itself. It is self-centered. That's what a human being is apart from God. These first three verses tell us salvation from a human point of view is all self-centered. It all looks inward. One person said our hearts are like a computer system, like 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. All it's doing is it's analyzing every object, every interchange, every event, every setting, and saying, what's in this for me? How does this make me feel better? See, AI just coming about, you have an internal AI, and it's running around going, what's in this for me? How does this benefit my happiness? How does it benefit my glory, my power, my reputation? Self-centeredness can make people very cruel, but it can also make people feel very moral. That's the problem. If you need to desperately feel good about yourself and everything is about you, there is no better way to feel good about yourself than to get control up by other people by being a good person. And you get to define what is good. Like you might help people, but you're not helping them for their sake, really in the end. You're helping them for your sake. So you feel better. So you live a meaningful life on your own terms. Martin Luther says, the sinful human heart seeks to use all things, even God, for its own sake. The passions of our flesh, in curvatus 
in say. The passions of our flesh. It's not just a desire. It's this inordinate desire. It's like an addiction. And there is nothing more addictive than the ego. If you're addicted to drugs, you will need more and more drugs to go back and get that same high you used to get. If you are addicted to your ego, you're going to always need more and more praise from people, and it is never, ever going to be enough. C.S. Lewis once said, there is nothing more miserable and enslaving than the self-centeredness. And I know this can be really discouraging. This is what salvation from a human point of view looks like. We are always chasing ourselves. And we have to be honest about that. The enemy is out there. The enemy is in here. And together we form this entire substructure of culture that we live in. But we are not just victims. We are rebels. We've made this world the way that it is. Here's a couple questions. Is God just in being angry at Satan? And you may say, oh, I don't believe in Satan. Okay, well, if you did, and if it was real, is God just in being angry at him? Well, yes. Is God just in being angry at our world systems that value cheating and lies and oppression? Of course it is. And yet when it comes to the end of verse 3, we want to suppress the truth that we were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We want to think all these things out there are the problem, but I'm a victim. I'm okay. I would never do anything. And hopefully you will see by the end of what Paul says is that we are not just victims. We are people who have perpetrated these things in the world. And hopefully you are now adequately bummed. Okay, second thing, what are we then saved to? So what are our lives meant to look like? Well, jump to the end of this, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I'm barely going to scratch the surface of this. We're going to come back and talk about this more next week. But we were saved to walk with God, to do the things that he calls us to in this life, and it would be beautiful. Now, now, when we talk about this, you know, we understand first and foremost how we live and walk that way is we are then saved by grace. It is the gift of God. God's salvation is a gift. We get salvation because of God's goodness, which means we should begin to see everything in our life as a gift, even our faith. The kind of life that God wants us to live is a life lived in faith that we don't look at our lives and say, oh, look how hard I work for this. This is mine. Or look how hard I'm doing this. I deserve more. Instead, we say, God... Everything I have is from you. How do you want to use it? It's all in your hands. We live by faith. We are not saved because we read the Bible. We are not saved because we read a prayer. It is God's gift to those who have been given faith. And people today say, well, Christians, they're all a bunch of hypocrites and they're a bunch of dummies. And guess what? It's true. It's true. Look around the room. I mean, just look, look around. I mean, do, seriously, do you have to be smart to be a Christian? No. <laughs> yes. You got to be the smartest in the world. No, you don't. You have, to even, you have to be moral to be a Christian. No, you don't. I believe that walking with Christ brings about the morality, but morality doesn't save us. Our smarts don't save us. And this is the difference with all the world religions. In every world religion, you've got to do something to make yourself acceptable to the gods, the goddesses, the universe, the divine, whatever it is. And that's who Paul is talking to, to these Ephesians. They think they have to do all of these things. Christianity says it is God himself that makes us acceptable, period. And that changes everything. The word faith from the Bible does not just mean intellectual belief. I mean, it doesn't mean less than that. But this faith means trust. It is the connotation that we begin to rest in who God is and who he's called us to be. 
because we get this peace that God himself has given to us. Why? So that no one will boast. We stop boasting when we start trusting and resting and believing everything in our lives is a gift. Paul says you can actually experience faith and grace and rest. You don't have to boast anymore. What you've been saved? No more boasting. In the book of Romans, it says we're saved by grace so no one will boast. And I want to explain that just a little bit. Because when we hear the word boast, we think bragging about something, right? I did this. I caught that. Um, I saw a sign on the side of the road, so I pulled over and I ate that 48-ounce steak and didn't pu puke or poop my pants, and so I got it for free. You know, oh, it's so wonderful. Did you see me? Boasting means something much more profound than that in the ancient world, much more profound. Uh, if you read ancient writings, uh, even in the Bible, you will see this. Before going into these battles, the soldiers would boast before going into these battles. And it can be scary to go into a battle when you know you have a better than 50-50 chance of not coming back. In this day and age, you could die from a paper cut, much less a sword through the gut. So what gets soldiers ready to face almost certain death and still run in charging? Boasting. That's what they would do. The night before, right before a battle, the soldiers would boast. They'd be like, we have bows and arrows, and they only have those rudimentary spears. We have a 1,000 chariots, and they don't have any. We have 10,000 soldiers. They only have 5,000 soldiers. Our king has never lost a battle. He's got the sharpest sword with the longest spear, and all would go, yay, and then they'd run into the battle. Boasting is giving yourself or trying to give yourself the confidence to face something really hard, the confidence to say, we can do this. And so why does Paul then say the great thing about a Christian life is it ends boasting? He says, you know, we're not technically warriors in this, but everyone still tries to boast. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, thus says the Lord, so God says this, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. So what is God talking about? What is Jeremiah talking about? What is Paul talking about? Life outside of Jesus means every single one of us is looking around for something to boast in, something to boast in, to rest in, to be proud of, to give ourselves the confidence to face life. Everybody is trying to find something that gives us our value and worth and strength. It's like that old Eurythmic song, everybody's, wait, no. <clears throat> everybody's looking for something. See, I got that nice. Yeah, here we go. When soldiers said, hey, look at our chariots or our numbers, they're not looking at those things. They're not looking at them. They're looking to them. They're not saying, hey, look at the sweet flames I painted on the side of my ride on this chariot. It's so great. No, they're saying, I'm looking to my chariot. My chariot is my confidence. They were boasting in those things. That's their confidence. Now, we all do this with something in our lives, every single one of us. Some people are students and they get really good grades and they boast in their grades. Look how good my grades are. Some people are got the dumbs and they're terrible students, but hey, look how much I can party and drink. Woohoo, look at me. And that's what they begin to boast in. Some people look at their career or success. Some people look to their family or their kids or their income or their lifestyle. And some people even look to their religion. And they say, look how good I am. And it's exhausting. Tim Keller writes this, when you're looking around for things to boast in, you're looking for things you must achieve, things you must acquire, things you must perform for. A life that you spend looking for things to boast in, you're scrambling for identity. You're scrambling for something that makes you feel better and it's exhausting. And ask yourself, what would life be like without it? 
What would life be like if you didn't have to find something to boast in, to make yourself feel better, to make you say, oh, I'm okay because of this thing? What would a life of faith and grace actually look like? A life without boasting. And this is where you get to it. The third thing, what we are saved through. And this is where we're going to go verses four through seven. After all the striving and looking at ourselves as the, as the failures that we are, I love what Paul says here because he starts like this, but God. See, this is where everything gets better, right? We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, we love the word love. Like, we read things like, you know, we, we are children of wrath. Like, what does wrath mean in the original language? Is it like sad? No, it's not sad. It means wrath, okay? But we know what love means. He loves us. Again, if you write in your Bible, I should underline that right there because it's a beautiful word. You don't have to lull yourself to sleep at night by looking at all the things you're boasting in. You don't have to drink wine out of a cardboard box or booze named after a bird you eat on Thanksgiving. You can actually go to bed because God loves you. He loves you, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, but even when you're dead in your trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. These are wonderful words. The love, kindness, mercy, grace. In Jesus, what you see is justice and mercy coming together. We are told throughout the scripture, especially the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. Jesus never sinned. Why did he die? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus dies not just for the sins that we commit, but our condition of sin that we live in, that we are born into, the life of sin. And this is why the gospel is considered good news, because God's justice is met. He is not a liar. When God says, you sin, you die, there is death. But there is also grace and love and mercy. We will never atone for our sins. That when Jesus cries in John 19, 30, when he's hanging on the cross, it is finished. What it literally means is it's paid in full. I paid for it. I did it. Verse 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, in the Bible and Christian language, this is a common phrase when it comes to Jesus. Uh, think of Easter. You probably hear this if you go, not here, but even somebody where else on Easter, you'll hear Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father. Now, we usually don't understand that terminology either. Just like the boasting of the earlier one, this would still make perfect sense to the people in that day and age. It was really cultural. So, if you're on the battlefield and you are boasting about what you're going to do, we're going to win, but everybody thought you were going to lose, and you actually won, there's a certain amount of glory attached to that. And when you would come back to your hometown or the capital city or whatever it was, the person who was in charge of that, who won that battle, would be given the greatest place of honor possible. You know where that was? Typically, the right hand of the throne of power. You would sit down at that right hand because you had conquered. It's the place of greatest honor. This makes so much sense for ancient people. So when Jesus is spoken about in the context, when we talk about that Jesus came and redemption mirrors all this, it clicks for them. Jesus, because all he accomplished was raised from the dead, taken to the kingdom of God, seated at the right hand of God the Father, the highest place of honor in the entire universe. They would say, of course he is. 
Where else would he be? That's the place where he would be. But listen to what Paul says here. And this should make your mind go. Paul says, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This makes no sense. We didn't do anything. We just sinned. <laughs> and God, being rich in mercy, comes and he raises us up. What does that mean? Well, first off, you have to see that's past tense. We are seated. It's already happened. And this leads to some confusion in this because it doesn't mean you are raised from the dead already. I mean, you're, you're not, you may feel like it if you have a cold like this, but you know, you're, you're still physically alive. Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. And it doesn't mean you're literally there because you're here. I mean, your mind may be somewhere else, but you're literally here right now. So you're, you're not there. And I'm not trying to be condescending. I'm trying to make this as clear as possible. What it means is we're not physically seated there, but it means you are legally seated there. This is a couple weeks ago. We talked about this idea of the already and the not yet. This is the already legally seated there, not yet in terms of future glory. So already, and it's a whole different can of worms because the Bible is constantly using this legal language when it speaks of our salvation. Jesus is called our advocate. The Holy Spirit is called our counselor. It's really the same word, and it means someone that stands at a bar of justice and argues our case. Unfortunately for us, we're guilty. There is no defense in ourselves. And this is why it is God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. For grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This means that Jesus, when he argues in front of this bar of justice before the Father, he's not arguing our innocence. He's not saying, oh God, just ignore the sin. Don't look at it like a lot of parents do when their kids go crazy in the grocery store. It's like, don't look at that. Act like it's not even happening. No, it's God fully look at this and then look at me because I'm the one who paid for all of that. He argues his substitution in our place legally. Now the law court is where you get this big term called justification and that's a legal declaration of being acquitted. The gavel hits and because of what Jesus has done, we are justified. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How are we declared justified when we are guilty? Where is the justice in that? It's that Jesus took our place. He steps into the place. It's that God gave the penalty for our sin, and then he writes the check to pay for it. Romans 3, 23 to 26, for there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the Cliff Notes version of Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Okay, right there, that's it. But then it goes on. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. Your sin brings death and the justifier I will save you because of my grace and mercy of the one who has faith in Jesus. When we trust Jesus with our life, we are treated by God as if we had done everything that Jesus did. We are seated with him. And again, that should blow your mind. God delights in those who trust in Christ. He honors, he accepts them. The Bible even tells us that angels rejoice when a sinner repents. And that means that God rejoices over us the way he does over his own son. I mean, wow. 
Verse 7, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That word kindness also doesn't have the full connotation we think about in English because it's not just a sentimentality. It refers to a costly action. It means not just saying, I love you, but putting everything on the line to then prove it. What does Jesus do? He comes in our place to pay for our penalty of sin that separated us from relationship with God and others and brings us back to himself at the cost of his own life. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3 through three tells us that the essence of sin is running after ourselves, acting like we are God, rebelling against Him, putting ourselves in His place. What is salvation? Well, verses 4 through 7 is where Jesus comes and He puts Himself where we deserve to be. He goes to a cross. Jesus doesn't just take physical death. He takes the wrath of God against sin upon Himself. In the gospel accounts, we are told that he's cut off from his father. He experiences the agony that we should have experienced if we would have been cut off from God for all eternity. But he experiences that. And I don't think there's any theologian in this world who can properly even explain what this means, this side of eternity. I think when we get it, we're going to be blown away even more by what Christ did. From a legal metaphor, Jesus came into our place to rescue us, to put us in the place that only he deserved to be. John Stott said it best. He said this, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where only we deserve to be. How does Jesus save us from our self-centeredness? By the most unself-centered thing anyone has ever done. In the book of Philippians, which we will get to next year, uh, it says that he was equal with the Father. He empties himself of his glory and took on the nature of a servant. Tim Keller said this, and I love this. There is one boast that will stop all boasting. Ready for this? Christ is my life. Christ is my life. That's the boast. Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. You want to live a life where the world's crucified to you? That's your boast. Christ is my life. That's it. You know, when I was talking about all the boasting that, you know, that people did before they went into battle, we got the king with the longest spear, the sharpest sword, and all that. Because the interesting thing is, our king comes, and he takes a spear in his side. All the damage that we have done on the battlefield of this world and our lives by hurting one another, our king comes and he starts to bind up those wounds to bring us back to himself. What does Paul say? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because we don't boast in our works, we boast in Christ. And this becomes one of the questions that we have to start asking ourselves is, what do we really boast in? Because there's a lot of people I know, even myself, at many times, who we call ourselves believers in Jesus, and yet we're trying to find our confidence in all these things that aren't Him. We're trying to find our confidence in, in what we do, what people say about us, what our achievements are, where I went on vacation, showing up on a Sunday morning, and I preached through the sickness, and probably killed half of you. <laughs> you laugh now. <laughs> What are our boasts? What, what are we boasting? Oh, that's my water. What are we boasting in? I think that's the, really the important question. Because understanding the grace that we have been giving, that is what is going to begin to change our lives. Salvation from our point of view is very scary. And it's very sad. 
because we are under wrath. We are under this condemnation because we are trying to save ourselves and we are tainted by our own sin. But then Paul goes on, but God being rich in mercy, that's what you see. That's what changes us. Today when we come to communion, that's what I'd like you to think about when you take communion. Who am I without Christ? But God being rich in mercy. And you take that cracker and you break it. Like Christ's body was broken for us. As he takes the spear in his side and blood and water flows out. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice, remind you of that blood that flowed. So that we are people who get to step back into relationship with God again. The beauty of the grace that we've received. If you are someone today who has never maybe really understood God in this way, maybe you thought, well, I'm spiritual and so I'm okay. Well, if you don't know Jesus, you're dead. And Jesus wants to bring you to life. He wants to extend hope and grace to you. And I pray that God is drawing you right now. And you, if you need prayer, right across the way in the lounge, you can grab a couple people. They love to pray with you. You can go during music. You can go after service. We would love to kind of talk and walk with you through these. The goodness and the generosity of our God who rescues and saves. Uh, if you'd like to give, Element doesn't pass an offering plate. Uh, they're offering boxes by the side wall. You can give online. But we believe that our giving is always meant to be a response to God's great generosity for us. And that's why we don't pass a plate because it always needs to be a response. Uh, I encourage you to take some sermon notes, answer some questions in there with friends or family, or maybe if you're just spending alone time with God in the morning, kind of walk to those questions and talk to Him about them and what's going on inside of you and what He is drawing you into because of His grace and mercy. Because I think when we understand what we've been saved from, to, through, it changes all that we are. And we live this life that reflects the goodness of a God who has come to rescue us just where we are, but not leave us where we are. Let's be a people who stop putting ourselves in God's place and simply trust Christ who came to rescue and save us. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would take us to the place where we would understand better your grace, your mercy, your kindness, that in all the ways that we tend to look at our own lives, and sometimes get so overwhelmed by the things that we have said or done that we, maybe we start to even see our sin the way that you do, that we would then say, but God being rich in mercy. That our boast and our confidence is not in the things that we've done, but it would be in what you've done, in who you are, that that would be our confidence, that you are rich in mercy, that we have been saved by grace through faith. And even that's not our own doing. It is a gift from you. And that would begin to change how we see all of our lives. That all the things that we have been clinging to and reaching towards to make us feel better about ourselves would be set aside, would pale in comparison to the great love that we would understand that you have shown us in Christ. That you would be glorified by a people who begin to live 
in the great grace that we received. That there be a glory that comes to you because of the change in your children. And that though we would see that you are the one who deserves to be in that place of honor, that seat of highest praise, you have then taken and seated us with you. And that would lead us to a place of humbleness, grace for one another, and a longing to see your kingdom go forward so that you would be seen and you would be known because you are our great rescuer, the one that saved and drawn us to yourself. We've been made alive because of what you've done. Help us to see this, know it, live in it. And we ask that in your son's good name. Amen. I am losing my voice. <laughs> Second service is probably going to get a video. <laughs> um, while we drop these curtains, guys, just take a moment and ask God, God, what am I boasting in? What am I looking towards as my confidence? What am I looking towards that if I just had that or if I just felt this way, if I, then I would be okay? What are you boasting in right now? Because anything that is not Christ, is going to leave you worse off than where you began. Because it's all, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, looking towards ourselves. And so I want you to ask God right now, what am I boasting in? And lay that before Him. And teach, and ask Him to teach you to begin to live and say, Christ is my life. And then come and take communion, sing some songs, and head out into the world in a way that says, Christ is my life. When you hit those hard things this week, those temptations that come up that want to draw you away from who he is, remember the boast. Christ is my life. He is my life. And live in that.